This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between. And we tell your stories, too. And send them to ouramericannetwork.org, because some of our very best have been from the people who listen to this show, from you. And this next story, well, it's the story of Virginia Hall. And she's a World War II spy who overcame both physical and societal ills during a time when the world seemed to be tearing itself apart, literally. Now for her story, as told by Judy Pearson. Virginia Hall was once asked why she never told her story. She replied that no one had ever asked her. In 2003, I began asking. My quest took me to her niece in Baltimore, newly declassified intelligence records in the National Archives, then to London, Paris, and across the French countryside. I conducted countless interviews in English and in French, and read dozens of personal accounts. What ultimately unfolded was the story of an incredible woman. She was intelligent, brave, and outspoken. She was loyal, daring, and stubborn. But as a young woman, all of Virginia Hall's energies were directed at becoming a foreign service officer. At high school graduation, while her chums were thinking of marriage and families, Virginia announced that the only way for a woman to get ahead in the world was with an education. After several undistinguished years at Radcliffe and Barnard, she went to the Sorbonne in Paris and then the Consulaire Académie in Vienna, from which she graduated in 1929. Back in the States, now fluent in French and German, she applied to take the Foreign Service exam. The exam consisted of three parts. The first was written, covering all manner of topics including world history, geography, and sociology. The second tested the applicant's knowledge of a foreign language, Virginia opted for French. And the third part of the exam, far more subjective, gave the examiner the power to judge what kind of officer the applicant would make. Virginia failed the exam, took it again, and was failed again. It was 1930. Women had only had the right to vote for 10 years, and the number of female Foreign Service officers could be counted on one hand. Gender discrimination was hard at work. She told a family friend that if she couldn't get into the Foreign Service through the front door, she'd try going in through the back door and landed a job as clerk at the American Embassy in Poland. She once again applied for the exam, but before she completed it, she was transferred to the American consulate in Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey. Here, her life changed forever. On a December Saturday afternoon hunting expedition with some friends in 1933, Virginia's gun accidentally discharged into her left foot. Despite doctors' best efforts, gangrene set in, and to save her life, they removed her leg from the knee down. What might have been considered by some as a life-ending event, Virginia saw as merely a delay in plans. When she was well enough to travel, she returned home to Baltimore to recuperate and be fitted with a seven-pound wooden prosthesis. And a year later, she was back at work, 
this time at the American consulate in Venice, from which she requested to take the foreign service exam yet again. But this time, rather than test questions, a letter arrived, informing her that, according to an obscure statute, amputees were not accepted in the foreign service. The letter concluded by politely asking Virginia not to apply again. She simply wouldn't fit in. As Hitler began blazing across Europe, a discouraged Virginia Hall left her consular job and went to France. Here, her leg was not an issue. She was gratefully accepted as a volunteer ambulance driver for the French army. Nor was her leg an issue several months later, when in London, she was approached by a special operations executive employee, the SOE. This undercover paramilitary organization had been created by Winston Churchill to, as he said, set Europe ablaze. The current war was unlike any other. The Allies needed extraordinary warfare in the form of espionage and sabotage. Escaping French military had told the British that there were many in France who would be willing to rise up against the Nazis, given enough organization and arms. Leaders who could be infiltrated into the country were needed, and Virginia fit the bill. The Brits didn't give a hoot about her gender. In fact, it was believed that women would make the best spies. This doesn't surprise those of us who are women, but it was a revelation to the men. Furthermore, men were being whisked to Germany as laborers. A man on the streets in France needed reasons for being there, but a woman didn't and could travel about more easily. Nor did the Brits care how many limbs Virginia had lost. Her disability was unknown to most. She walked only with a slight limp. At the SOE's training camps, Virginia learned things her Baltimore contemporaries would never have imagined. I had the good fortune to interview one of the instructors while I was in London. Leslie Fernandez taught SOE recruits, including Virginia, physical combat, in other words, how to kill. And Virginia wasn't shown any favoritism because of her missing leg. She wouldn't have accepted it anyway. The only training she didn't receive was in parachuting, the primary means by which agents were infiltrated. It was 1941, and America had not yet entered the war. Virginia would be free to enter France as a non-combatant, which she did using journalism as her cover. And when we come back, we'll continue this story, Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with a Wooden Leg. And by the way, you're not hearing stories like this many other places, folks. And to hear about her grit, her perseverance, and rising above the odds, well, we love stories like this. Virginia Hall's story, again, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, continues after these messages.
And we return to Our American Stories. And when we left off, Virginia Hall was sneaking into France back in 1941. Not a time actually to be going into France. And she was posing as a journalist to act as a British intelligence operative. Let's return to the author, Judy Pearson. I spent hours digging through the British National Archives at Kew and the Imperial War Museum archives in London, both of which were rich in material. I heard the oral histories of those recruited agents who had daringly dropped into occupied France, where Virginia and others awaited them. When I arrived in France after spending several days digging through the archives in Paris, I rented a car and took off across the country to visit firsthand all of the cities Virginia had worked from. She was ultimately sent to Lyon, the center of resistance activities in unoccupied France. So I went to Lyon as well. There, under her journalism cover, while ostensibly collecting information for newspaper articles, Virginia was also collecting information about Nazi activities. Her flat, innocently appearing as that of a hardworking writer, was the clearinghouse for every British agent who was sent to central France in 1941. Through Virginia, they were able to connect with fellow agents and contact others to help them. They collected counterfeited money and wireless radios needed to perform their work. When they were captured and imprisoned, Virginia worked on their escapes. She organized her own group of resistance members in Lyon and had contacts in Marseille and at the Spanish border, two places from which people could disappear should the need arise. She and her group saved innumerable lives of both downed Allied pilots needing passage out of France and agents who were being hunted by the Gestapo. But it wasn't long before Virginia herself became hunted. Klaus Barbie, later known as the Butcher of Lyon, spread the word that a lady with a limp, an Englishman or a Canadian, was wanted in connection with espionage activities. His posters announced that Virginia was the most dangerous of all Allied spies and that everyone should help him find and destroy her. Virginia's exodus across the Pyrenees Mountains, the rugged chain that separates France from Spain, was in November 1942. The cold and rigorous march would have been exhausting for anyone, but dragging a seven-pound wooden leg through the snow made it all the more difficult for Virginia. She hadn't dared tell the guide about her leg. He was already grumbling because she was a woman. At one point, she was able to radio London to tell them she was on her way out of France. She mentioned that Cuthbert, her clever nickname for her leg, had become quite tiresome. The recipient of the message, ignorant of the leg's name, wired back that if Cuthbert had become tiresome, she should have him eliminated. At the end of the grueling 30-mile journey, Virginia was arrested in Spain for not having papers. She was imprisoned for six weeks, released only after her former cellmate, a Barcelona prostitute, was able to get word to the British consulate that she was being held. By the time Virginia had returned to England in early 1943, a new intelligence organization had been born. Its name was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It was patterned after the SOE, with one exception. 
It was purebred American, led by a hero from World War I named General Wild Bill Donovan. Virginia was desperate to get back into the fight, and transferring to the OSS made sense since she was an American. But there was a concern. She was now a hunted woman whose sketched picture had been spread throughout France. A return could only be facilitated if she were disguised. That of an old peasant woman fit the bill. On her second trip to occupied France, Virginia's intelligence and ingenuity served her and saved her many times. This time, she acted as her own radio operator, setting up numerous resistance cells. Three months after returning to France, the greatest armada the world had ever seen crossed the channel for the D-Day landings. When the signal was given, her resistance cell went into action, cutting off Nazi supply lines and disrupting their communications all in a successful effort to aid the Allied invasion of Europe. By the fall of 1944, all of France was liberated. During Virginia's second stint in the country, she had had the pleasure of leading 1,500 resistance volunteers who killed 150 Nazis and captured 500 more. Her team had sabotaged numerous transportation and communication links. Virginia's leadership and sang-froid was not only admired, it became legendary. They called her La Madonna, the Madonna. Virginia was awarded the Member of the British Empire, the French Croix de Guerre avec Palme, and the American Distinguished Service Cross, the only woman in World War II to receive that American distinction. But Virginia wasn't interested in accolades. She wanted to continue her work in espionage. Although the OSS had been dissolved, Virginia was one of the first women on board the new intelligence agency, known as the Central Intelligence Group. It became the Central Intelligence Agency in December 1947. But the new world of intelligence was very different from the one Virginia had previously been a part of. Communism was the enemy now, and as one observer put it, Joseph Stalin made Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Virginia wanted desperately to become an operative again, willing to undergo whatever training was necessary. But at the advanced age of 41, she was looked upon as old school. Her skills were outdated, and her aggressiveness was offensive to the younger men who were her superiors. Her experience was dismissed as not pertinent. After all she'd been through and all the sacrifices she gladly made, once again, Virginia Hall didn't fit in. Virginia had married Paul Goyot in 1950, a French-American she had met toward the end of the war. She accepted mandatory retirement from the CIA in 1966, and she and Paul moved to a farm in Barnstown, Maryland. They raised poodles, gardened, and grew old together. Virginia died in 1982, and Goyot followed five years later. She was never bitter about the fact that her career hadn't begun or ended as she would have liked. Rather, Virginia chose to remember the magnificent days in the middle, the days when her clever mind and brave heart 
help defeat fascists bent on world domination. And a special thanks to Judy Pearson. And by the way, her book about Virginia Hall was called Wolves at the Door, the true story of America's greatest female spy. And I had never heard that story, and I'm a big World War II buff, and it doesn't get better than a story like that. I mean, the woman accidentally shoots her foot off, and for most people, that's it. She gets turned down once, twice, but is determined to be a member of the Foreign Service, eases her way into France when most people will be running from France as the Nazis come to occupy the country. And ultimately, Klaus Barbie, the butcher, has her as the most wanted person in the Nazi regime when it comes to spies. Certainly, what an impact she had, her life, what an example. And by the way, to be the only woman to win the American Distinguished Service Cross I don't know why more of us don't know this story, Um, but that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And my goodness, what Judy Pearson did here, the author, I mean, she literally walked in Virginia Hall's shoes, traveled all over Europe just just to honor her story. And these are the kind of writers and researchers we love to put on the show. Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, here on Our American Stories. This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. This is Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, Life-Changing Stories of Faith, Love, and Laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an eighth-grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan, during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses 
and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So, what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player, and he enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, you guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, Son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, How can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive. So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach. But only 27 of your classmates walk off alive. That was Ira Hayes. He had images 
of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk, face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad. John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima, and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out, and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. By the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. 
This is Our American Stories, Michael Powers' story, James Bradley's story, and his father's. continue with our American stories and it's time for another installment of our Founders series with Doug Ryder. Doug has spent his life recruiting executive talent for companies across this great country and along the way he's encountered remarkable stories about how everyday Americans risk it all to follow their dreams and turn their ideas into businesses. Here's Doug with one of those stories. Today on the Founders. I was always pushing the limit. Always. Always. This is the story of a young woman whose career led her to a big public company, and she actually got something done. The seeds of her success were present at birth. As a child, her tenacity stuck out like a sore thumb. We were sled riding down in the backyard at my great-grandmother's house, and we lived down the street, and my mom was yelling for us to come home, and I said, I just have to do one more. And I jumped on one of those like old radio flyer sleds and went flying down. My zipper got caught on the sled right at a tree, broke my arm, because I had to do one more. I'd bounce back and do one more again. I just do. You never know what you're going to miss if you don't try it again. This girl grew up into a woman that loves to solve problems and make people's lives better. Her drive was the engine, her fuel, tenacity and she takes it everywhere she goes. I was a bus person at a restaurant and I worked my way up to waitress, cocktail waitress. I was just hungry at that point. Anything I could do, the more work I could get, the better. I mean, I used to come home from college and do two and three shifts because I had great respect for the people whose profession it was, um, was to be a waiter or waitress. And I know a lot of these people, one gal had two kids, she was a single mom, she never got a break. So when I came home from school, um, I'm like, yeah, I'll take your shift. Give me all the good ones, the bad ones, I don't care, I'll do it. So they couldn't wait till I got home so that they could take a little bit of a break because that was their daily life. Beth earned her bachelor's and master's in human resources and launched her career. She started in big, male-dominated, engineering-driven public companies. A great place to start if you're a young engineer, very difficult for a young woman in human resources. I always was met with, you can't do it. How can you go run a technology company? You don't have a technology background. I just never even thought any different. I'm just doing it. It never entered my mind. On today's episode of The Founders, we bring you the story of Beth Potraz. You can't replace roll up your sleeves and just get it done. You can't replace walking through the fire. You just have to do it. I started at Helene Curtis a really cool, sexy consumer products company making beauty products, professional hair care, skin care. Working at first as a recruiter, Beth's first job was to fill positions for their brand new state-of-the-art distribution center. 
and I looked at that list of 99 jobs and I, I went and met all the manufacturing unit managers and I actually went out and did every single job. I was a packer, I did palletizing, I worked with the compounders to make the, the product. I did all the jobs because I wanted to know what it was I was hiring for, right? I got a lot of credibility. I worked all the shifts. We had 12-hour shifts. We had three eight-hour shifts. And we were seven days a week. I knew every person in that plant was like five or 600 people, and I just loved every minute of it. So I did those jobs, and I moved. Um, actually, I started as a recruiter, and we were organized by discipline. And then it was my idea, along with a colleague, because I was hiring. They were in employee relations. And what we were discovering is, because I was even doing internal placements, what we were discovering is you might talk to somebody, but yet they've been just been written up two days before. And we didn't have, you know, a lot of computers at the time. I mean, I had a big wall in my office with little bitty magnets that represented roles with people's names in them. So I could see on a glance what production lines I had jobs open for and how people were moving around, kind of a, like a living org chart. So we said, this isn't working. We have to get closer to the business. You know, my mentor always said to us, HR is nothing but a cost center. You have to be able to show how you can add value. So really took that to heart and we really were into you know what keeps you up at night what's your problem how can I help you solve it that talent was a key part of solving a lot of their problems so we uh, proposed a new org structure and introduced the HR generalist role and then each got assigned to different aspects of the operation the reason we rep recommended the new approach is because nobody could have a true partner at the table sitting in on their staff meetings really working the problems and supporting the leaders on executing their plan because when they came down they had their plan and it was very clear but they had to go to different people depending on what the topic was and it was really frustrating for them so we said well why don't we just each get assigned to someone and then we can learn to do it all and we'll work amongst ourselves if we don't have that expertise to broker that in so that's what we did and I would say to you that every single one of them if you were to ask them that was a turning point for them as well and they all would say that's when they discovered the true value of HR as not being an administrative processing. It was more than just getting people paid on time or getting them hired or dealing with a performance issue. We were intricately involved in everything that they were trying to, to accomplish and always you know, there to offer creative solutions, whether it was me supporting the manufacturing engineering group, materials management, or the people on the production floor. From there, Beth went to Rockwell, another big engineering-driven public company. I worked at their flagship plant in Twinsburg, and we did it. We implemented self-managed work teams. The culture was amazing. We put in a performance-based culture, so we combined performance and development and team development and individual development along with compensation and pay, and just did a completely different approach in HR. So that was fantastic. And during her time at Rockwell, she had this great idea. Why don't we treat employees as consumers? What a concept, treating your employees with as much deference, respect, and importance as you treat your customers. It was revolutionary, a completely new way of looking at things. Back in the early 90s when the war for talent was coined and had started, I thought to myself, you know, employers were going to need to start looking at employees as consumers in the employment relationship whose needs varied and would change throughout the life cycle of their career. You know, early in your career, it might be important to you to go to conferences or to have cool gadgets or tools to do your job. You may want more vacation because you have, you know, younger children and you need to have more flexibility. You know, later on, you may want more contribution to your 401k. Whatever the scenario was, 
we would have to be able to create packages and create an experience that would would align with people's preferences were and what they needed at that point in their life. She returned to her former employer, Helene Curtis, which had been purchased by Unilever, a huge international company. Imagine the challenge of a 30,000 employee company of creating a benefits package that made every individual unique and feel like they had their own. Most would say it can't be done, but she did it. Came back to Unilever, worked with the scientists and engineers. They were all inventing things. They were getting patents left and right. And I thought, I want to go invent something. So I came up with the idea, using this employee as consumer, that I could create a technology where you know, you would ha you'd be able to create your own employment package and have it feel like it was a one-to-one -one relationship, that that was unique for you, and it could be flexible. But you know, benefits, historically, has not been an area that has been considered really innovative. And then she did the unimaginable. She left a cushy job with a big public company, threw her money on the table, and founded her own business serving the trucking industry. Drive my way. I was doing a HR process recruiting redesign for a large trucking company, helping them redesign their driver recruiting process because their number one issue is being able to attract and retain truck drivers, mm -hmm. CDL, commercial driver's license truck drivers. And we did a whole redesign, so studied it, learned a lot, and I realized that was the perfect application for that idea I had way back in the early 90s of viewing the employee as the consumer in the employment relationship. At the end of the day, trucking is an enormous industry, $700 billion. It's vital to the economy. It has a growing driver shortage. It's 45,000 now, it's gonna to grow to 175,000 by 2024. There's also a need for over 900,000 more drivers to be hired. And they've had turnover up over 100% for nearly a decade. But there's enough work out there for everybody. It's just a matter of whether or not it was a fit. So for a truck driver, their life and their job are inextricably connected. So that fit piece of I can have the job, uh, the life that I want doing a job I love, is really key to getting them to stay. So I applied that concept to branching off and creating Drive My Way. A company that's changing the lives of truck drivers across the country. I had a driver call and say, you know, I'm an over-the-road driver, I love my job, I love my company, I've been doing this for many, many years, and I don't know where to turn because my wife just got diagnosed with cancer and I need to be home for her more, and my company doesn't offer anything other than over-the-road. So now I find myself looking for a job that's closer to home. And, you know, we can be there as people have things change in their lives when they need, you know, need to make, make a move. And sometimes we can even help facilitate those conversations within the same organization. Mm -hmm. they, do, they just don't even realize you've got somebody over here who now needs to do this and you didn't even know, you, you could be offering that to them and they wouldn't even leave you if you knew more about what, what was important mm -hmm. at the time. So in that regard, it's really exciting because we truly are able to make a difference in people's lives and in their careers. The seeds of success and failure are almost always present at the inception of the enterprise. Beth's tenacity showed up early. Her radio flyer sled and broken arm were but a prelude to her working life. And in her own words, you don't know what you're missing if you don't do it again. And great job on that. And that's Doug Ryder in our Founders Series. 
Beth Potras's story, and what a good one, and looking at human resources as human talent, and viewing the employee as the consumer in the employment relationship. What a paradigm shift, and what a smart shift, too, in this changing world and people's circumstances changing. You want to keep your good people, and you got to, well, you got to tailor things to their ever-changing needs. A great story, Beth Potras's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Billy Joel, and he's had some career, folks, 150 million-plus albums and records sold. That's ridiculous. In fact, he's the third biggest solo artist in record sales of all time, bigger than Springsteen, Madonna, or Michael Jackson. And we're about to tell you the story of a song, a Billy Joel song, one you may know, one you may not know, but you're about to get to know it, and it's called Lullaby. And every once in a while, Billy Joel goes around the country and talks to colleges about the music of the music business, the art of writing music, and also the business of the music business, and lots of stories in between. On one particular occasion at the University of Pennsylvania, a young mom asked Billy Joel a question about her favorite song, Lullaby, and how it came to be. Joel explained that the song came about because his daughter, who had just turned seven, had asked him some pretty tough questions. Let's take a listen. So I had this, 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 uh, this melody... ...which is how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew. You go into the rest of their lives. They they take them with you. So, uh... But also, this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing, like, Daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. I'll, I'll ne- I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it, it, was, it was a tough answer, you know, in, in both respects. So Joel stammers for a bit, but then sits down in front of the keyboards and starts to perform. I 
point joel starts to stammer a little bit gets very emotional because well he doesn't give this explanation at madison square garden and my guess is he hadn't thought about the connection of how this song had been made in a very long time but then he gets it together steps back up to the keyboards and closes things out with this stunning final verse Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always Be a part of me Someday What a story. Billy Joel just trying to answer a question of his baby girls. So he wrote a song to sing to her. One she could sing to her baby girl. And her baby girl could sing to hers. Or her baby boy. It's a song all of us can sing to all of our boys and girls. It's the story of a song, and that's the thing about music. It transcends time, race, class, and geography. And that's why we love to do these stories. The story of a song, Billy Joel's Lullaby, here on Our American Stories. Here 
And we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our On Leadership series. And we bring you stories from time to time from people across every field and walk of life, from the military to business and sports, and from leaders all around this country, big names and little names too. Today, Alex Cortez brings us the voice of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and a guy who made a wood bat for his son, and it accidentally overtook Louisville Slugger as the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball and in only a decade. Here's Jack on their football recruits. When recruits come in, we had one here yesterday from Hawaii, and we're talking, and they kind of know a little bit about what we've done as research. I said, I don't go into all this stuff. I know what we do here. We, we are very unique in the aspect that what we do with ACL injuries and how efficient we are. We're, we, I think we are, if not the best at it. But I tell them, it's about, I said, it's not about football. I said, football's like taxes and death. It's gonna end. And it's probably, one thing that's different than those, it's gonna end early. Taxes gonna last forever and death, hopefully you live you know, a long life. But that's gonna end early. I said, don't think about football. What we like to do in our area is to help you pass football. There's where the influence can happen. We want to help you learn you as a young man and what do you want to do with your life? So, so we use our network to help you with that. Or we try to groom you. We try to teach you even about taxes. You're not going to realize when you get out of here and say if you do play, yeah, LSU has the most guys in the NFL. That, that's a fact. But if you get a chance to do that, think about half your salary going. You go to California, we have players that tell us all the time, it's 52%. Said you're working basically from January through July for free. That's what you're doing. (laughs) Tredavious White, who is with the Buffalo Bills, who grew up in a, you know, not a great neighborhood, left with $21,000. Legally, may I say, because he's one of the best, he wore the number 18 jersey here, which represents a model person. And then we have a kid now, Devin White, who's on our team, who's going to break his record. Wait, did Jack just say breaking LSU's record on the amount of money saved? He's already <laughs> close to 20000 It's not a record uh, most people think about. No. Football. So we, those are things we, we enjoy. But you can't. I mean, what do you? if you're smart, you can save. Could you imagine leaving as a college student with 21000 I certainly didn't, but what I really wanted to hear more about was this number 18 jersey thing that started with quarterback Matt Mock, who had that number. So Matt represented everything you want in your son, everything, leadership, good person, you know, just, he was from Indiana, from, uh, you know, an area that did woodwork. So we had a running back named Jacob Hester, he got the number, represented the same thing. So we thought it'd be a great idea carry this was 2004 probably five so Matt was our national championship quarterback then Hester was our national championship running back and uh, so he wore the 18 and thought it'd be a good idea to hand this down to someone who's come through at, at first low adversity good person so the tradition start handing down 18 every 18 now was voted by the equipment guys, the um, sports information, weight room. Everybody had a say to say, all right, this is the guy we like. This is, the, this is our leader. This is the person we want to be our son. 
And obviously the head coach now has the final say. Before it was just kind of internal. Now it's become, it's in the, it's in the College Hall of Fame, the story, or the 18, what it represents. So any scout that comes here, they know, well, he wore 18, so we don't have to ask about character. So Tredavious White wore the 18 for two years because he got it when he was a junior. And um, so we're waiting to see who we got this year who's going to be nominated. And we just found out, this was a couple years ago, uh, Louisiana was the 18th state in the United States. <laughs> so, uh, which was a, a thing. And, and Shelly, who's, who's Jewish, she's one of my assistants. She's one of the first female assistants. I hired her as a female assistant in, in 1996, which none of the SEC schools had. And she goes, you know, 18 for the Jewish folks is a lucky number for us. It stands for a significant deal, the number 18. So 18 has become a huge deal at LSU now. And are guys now actually competing on character to get the number 18? Now they do. Now they do. So that is something I really like. Because I was telling Hester, I said, just think about it. Before a game, they sold a number seven jersey and 18's become... You see all these little 18s running around. That wouldn't have been a number yet, but it, it, it's become a number because of what you guys have done. It's a staple number now. Typically, at a university, you say, and I think this is an advantage of ours, all right, we're gonna have treatments at six o'clock in the morning. Okay, six o'clock. So everybody rushes in, you treat them, look at them, and get them out. So when Saban was here, his staff meetings, they had meetings in the morning, but the big staff, when I had to do their injury report, was at 10. I said, all right, you guys have to be here from 7 o'clock to 10. I have to see you before that. Now, what that did is I always have one-on-one -on -one time and talk to them. Because I always instruct our doctors, there's an approach you go when you examine a player. We're not going to use the word tear, we're going to use the word sprain. And we're gonna always find out the positive. If a kid tears his ACL and his cartilage is fine, we're gonna say, man, yeah, you tore your ACL, but your cartilage looks great. And that's where you develop that one-on-one. -on -one. Because injuries, as mental as anything else, and we always get kids back faster, it's always safe, but there's a mental aspect that you can make them believe. And you don't want to, I never hate to give them time frames. We always say we're gonna take it day to day or week to week. So we have trained our physicians to say that. I always believe I had an opportunity to multiple NFL teams. And matter of fact, there was one about a month ago. I said, I'm not gonna take the job. They begged me, you know, I, I did listen to them because they kept saying, look, you can do this, this. And I, my passion was never in the NFL. I worked camps, Browns 85, Buccaneers 87. That's when we had three days at Tampa. <laughs> I mean, that was the worst camp ever. But I, uh, side so no, and their GM, vice president, they were disappointed. And so they said, we don't know where to start. Tell us what you want in an athlete. What do you look for when you hire somebody? I said, you guys are going to overcomplicate. I said, you only need three things. I said, a good person, good heart, compassionate, stays above board. Second thing's personality. You gotta have somebody that has a personality that can talk to people. I said the latest studies have showed people with personality have better careers than people with high IQs. It's, it's proven. And that's, I'm not saying you gotta be dumb, but they are, they are better. 
And I said, the third thing, keep an open mind. Have somebody that's open-minded. Not so open-minded your brains will fall out, but open-minded to change and, and willing to do it. I said, that's it. And if you have that, that's what I've hired here. We don't lose people. We don't. And uh, I, I also focused on a lot of Midwest people, to be honest with you, because of values. I have. I'm not saying there's, it just works for us. So I end up helping them with the search, and we found somebody. And I think, again, people overcomplicate things. But really, that's, that's all you need. I've been approached many a times, and one thing, I, and this last time, our administration was very good. They said, which I felt good about, they said, I've never come up there for money for myself. I've always come up for my assistance the whole time I've been here. Never once. Our assistants are one of the higher paid. I wasn't. I was probably mid-pack, but um, one of the senior associates mentioned that to the administration, said, you know, here's a guy here that never asked for money. And again, I always believe if you do the right thing, that, that comes with it. But again, how much do you need? Get something to drive around, something decent, decent house. All right, let's go. You don't need all them rooms in a house. What are you doing with all them rooms? Status? What do you need in life? I mean, you really... You, you just want your kids to stay healthy and try to help others, you know, and, and that's the reason why I'm still an athlete trainer. It's nice to have the ability to influence young people because if you don't, then I think that's the void. I try to teach these guys, if they're successful in football, take care of, there's a family that you probably grew up that didn't have much, but do something for them. It'll be the most rewarding thing that you have. And what a voice. You're listening to Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports, whose wood bats accidentally overtook Louisville Slugger as the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball and all in only a decade. When we come back, more on leadership and life with Jack Marucci. This is Our American Story. We continue with Our American Stories and our On Leadership series with Jack Marucci. And Jack's the director of LSU's athletic training, and his Marucci Sports has the number one bat in Major League Baseball. Now let's return to Jack. I have a son who I start making the bats for. He plays college baseball. So I wanted to tell him how fortunate he was. And I pulled up, and they just did the new stats, the NCAA. It has the percentage of playing Division I sports. College football is only 2.6%. College baseball is 2.1%. That is it. 98% is not going to be playing collegiate sports. That's how low the odds are. Men's basketball is 1%. And I don't think people realize the odds are that low. 
So he comes back from Christmas break and goes, hey, Dad, I, I talked to our coach and we had our exit interview and he heard that I was going to go to graduate school and, you know, I kind of have a plan. And he said, so, Gino, you don't have baseball in your future and, you know, you're not really counting on it. And he goes, well, let me tell you a story. When I was in seventh grade and I told my dad I want to be a baseball player. And he goes, my dad looked at me and says, no, you're not. You're not that good. And he, he goes, my dad told me two things. He goes, you better worry about education and treating people right. And he says, my coach loved it. He goes, he, he, he about fell out of the chair. And he goes, you know, that's refreshing to hear something like that. So, you know, it, it always lends to me that, you know, babies are born the same since the I mean, 50s, 60s, you know, DNA is there. But I think parenting has changed today's society. And you see it very strong in sports. That's where it pokes its ugly head. You know, if their little son, Johnny, eight, nine years old, had a good week in baseball, the parents all happy at work. And if the kid struck out two or three times and they're down in the dumps and they're upset. So it's very conditional. And I think it's conditional love. It's conditional if they hit the ball or don't hit the ball. I mean, that's what we're at now. Uh, or did he make the goal? Or, he, you know, he made the winning basket or he missed it. So, you know, I think we are a society who's becoming a parent is becoming so enabling and protecting their kids way too much. And yes, you can be anything you want. That is true to a certain extent, but I wasn't gonna be an NBA basketball player. Yes, you can be an accountant or something, but even then, some people are limited the way they process information. It is, it's, it's facts. You know, some people, that's why you have all these different careers. You know, if everyone was good at math, we'd have everybody was an accountant. <laughs> but no, we have everybody's wired differently and that's what makes the world so unique. And that's where you have to plug everybody in. And, and I always believe people should work on their strengths, not weaknesses. Let someone else adapt to your weakness. They have that strength. That's how you build, I think, a good team. But my son, you know, we didn't do the travel ball. We were the anti-establishment. Maybe because we were lazy, too, as parents, we wanted to go on vacation. But, you know, we built the wiffle ball field where he learned to play. In their backyard. Which looked like a major league field now. We were a little obsessive on it. But he, he, he had the ability to play college baseball. And like I told him, only 2.1% played Division One baseball. Be very thankful. And I think that you don't have to do all these excessive things for your children. Let them be kids. Let them figure things out. Um, play in the backyard. Let them compete in the neighborhood. They'll learn a lot of those traits. Yes, you have to have reps and be good at something, but I think you have to all keep it in perspective because parents become so aggressive today. It's like if you look at elbow injuries have gone up. It's not because of curveball. Oh, well, he's not throwing curveballs. Well, it's, it's the you only have so many throws in your arm. If you're using all your throws up from 8, 9, 10 because of those tournaments, you want to win that little ring. You know, that's what it is. Everybody's not Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, again, is his DNA is a lot different than everybody else's. But you have had a lot of great pitchers that they never got there because they eventually blew their arm out. That's because they used it up when they were younger. And I think you have to take multi-sport kids, let it play out that way. Our best athletes here at LSU are the multi-sport kids. Football, for example, we, we haven't seen kids like a, a Dwayne Bowe didn't go out until he was a junior in high school and he was an NFL first rounder. So don't put your kids into all these drills and stuff when they're young and feel like it's, it's become the chore. All your kids are gonna tell you the same thing. You hear it from every parent, oh, he loves it. 
He loves the travel ball. Oh, he, he can't get enough of it. Well, the parent can't get enough of it. The kid's not going to tell you that because basically he's not going to want to disappoint the parent is what it is. And you can try to enable again all these things. And that's, I think that's what we've seen more than anything. And I think that's where we've gotten away from the, the core value as a kid because a, a child still wants to be a child. He still wants to have fun. But I think parents today have seen this competitive edge having their kids live through their kids, and especially through athletics. It's almost child abuse because of some of these injuries you see on these kids and they're pushing them. Why would you want your kid to have a Tommy John at the age of whatever, 13, 14, when it can be avoided? Let their bodies develop, let them have the ability to, again, enjoy the game. You know, you see baseball played all, all year round. And I use this analogy. I'll bring up the pizza analogy, and I love pizza. But eating it every day may not taste as good if you just wait every couple weeks or every week. It tastes better. It's like when we were all in school. We couldn't wait to get out at the end of the year. We loved it. As much as we hated school, we were kind of excited when school started. We did it the first couple of days because too much of a good thing is not a good thing. If you're playing baseball, they're never excited to play. I saw it in my son. When baseball season came, he was fired up. He was more fired up than everybody because everyone else playing all year round. He's ready to get in there. He can sustain that passion for the season because he's not burned out with it. It's not. It's not humdrum, it's new, it's exciting. He's ready to get back at it, because if you take something away too, it makes things better. And to close, we hear from Jack Murchie about another leader and one of the former coaches he worked for and won a championship with, Florida State's Bobby Bowden. I think Bowden did a good job because of who he was as a person. He was a very religious, you know, every Friday night, in which I don't know if you could do this today, you know, he brought in God's Word and he tied it in to the theme of if we're playing Notre Dame or we're playing Florida, and he had a story. And I think it changed, probably from osmosis, some of the kids you could see evolve from that part of it. I'll tell you one story he talked about. It was when he was at West Virginia. And he told the story about how you know, when you think things are bad and how God will turn things around when you least expect it. So there was this player that his parents were blind. Never got to see him play. Never got to see him play. His dad always wanted to see him play. You know, his dad would come to games and hear the crowd noise. And it meant a lot to the athlete. But he always wished his dad could see you know, his son play. So he says his dad got ill, got very sick. The kid was struggling that season. His dad passed away, and the kid has a breakout game. And he goes, you know, why don't you play so well? He goes, well, that's the first time my dad saw me play. <laughs> I mean, it's touching. Um, and, you know, just what a story. And he said, you know, that was the first time. He talked, you know, it was God's will, but he's in heaven, he got to see me play. And he said, that's why I played so well. I mean, just uh, sticks with you.
And you've been listening to Jack Marucci, again, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports, and just one of the great voices in college sports. And when you're running the training, the athletic training for a school like LSU, it is one heck of a big job, one of the most important jobs. And faith is a big part of Jack's life, and he doesn't scream up and down about it, but it's a big part of his life. And my goodness, the kids... I've always thought he would give up that company in a heartbeat if it was a choice between the company and working on those sidelines. Jack Marucci's story on leadership here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Voices of Main Street segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's nothing like seeing a small business succeed. And when a small business can save a town, oh my goodness, that's even better. And today we're talking about a family business that did just that. It became an internet sensation, revived a dying hobby, and brought new life to the small town of Hamilton, Missouri. Quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick and comfortable blanket, a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details. While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything. Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, in our town here, we have 13 shops. They are all fabric-specific. So when you go into a shop, it's going to have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here. You can sleep here. It's just a great place to be. That was Jenny Down, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters. And when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world. And every year, thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter. I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, When you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins, it's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful 
or how old the fabric is or anything like that, but that quilt is gonna be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're gonna take care of them, what are we gonna do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it and you give it to the Goodwill, someone's gonna go along and go, I can't believe I found this. But how did this all start? How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out, it was a family effort, led by one of her sons, Alan. It was 2008. Market crashed. My kids wanted to, they got worried about what we were going to do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking me, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know. It's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there, does it, are people really... Are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together. You know, long story short, they, they wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house. It was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable and we started machine quilting for people and Alan is a computer guy so when he he bought the machine he started looking at what quilting was doing online and it had not yet made the jump online and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online and I said sure what's a tutorial and he said well I want you to teach people to quilt online and uh, and I said how will people even find it and he said we're gonna put it on YouTube. And I said, isn't that where those crazy teenagers put their videos? And he's like, yes, but it's gonna be our center for learning. And I was like, uh, nobody's gonna go look on the computer to learn how to do something. You know, I couldn't see it. He insisted it was true. And so we started doing videos online. People started watching. People then called and said, hey, that fabric you used, you know, uh, I really want some of that. And I would say, well, it's mine, it's my fabric, you can't use it, have it, you know, and they'd be like, well, I want some. And I said, the kids, maybe we should think about doing this. And we have over 300 tutorials now and maybe, you know, I don't know how many over, but I know over and a new one comes every Friday. Every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically in a nutshell, how that all began. Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri Star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri Star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business. When you start, you know, everybody's in the groove of the picture. It's like, we're doing it! We're doing it! It's going to be amazing. You know, it's the same as like, you get married and like your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best! And then fast forward five years and it's like, no, we're still really happy. But we know that this, you know, it doesn't come free. It takes some work. Or we're having a baby, look, it's right there. Then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy. I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. You know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, gleeful, you know, 20-year-olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy. We are happy, but, like, we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost. Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure. They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. 
Missouri Star spends so much time renovating that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew. When we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew, not just growing as a business. So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them, you know, if they, if, if they leave here today, they go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like, hire me and I'll come and do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've developed a skill that's worth markedly more than what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the, to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day and that like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better. As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, a second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins. My name is Manny Caldera, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter. And I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California, and I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on the hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A. Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Doves were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence. So one of the, one of the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age, um, we, are, we have more time and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now... Um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, it, be, it was the center place for stringed cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town and that town became the center for string, it would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize, there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement. And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. 
what started as a hobby has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession. And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And what a story, folks. Jenny and her family, 400 employees, one small town changed forever. This is the power of small business to change lives. And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at DefendMainStreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story here on Our American Stories.